New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. The world is in a massive realignment process. The context we've been used to has shifted and is calling for new ways of adapting to many conditions that have never existed before. The world is changing and we must learn to move and change with it. This is a topic we'll be exploring today with our guest, Marguerite Moore Calloway. Marguerite Calloway is founder of an international leadership and management consultancy, the Calloway Leadership Institute. Her many projects take her all over the world to several countries in Africa and to China and many other places as well. She's the author of The Energetics of Business and the forthcoming Leadership in the Unknown. Join us for the next hour as we explore moving with ease in chaotic times with our guest, Marguerite Moore Calloway. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Marguerite, welcome. Well, thank you. It is an absolute joy and pleasure to be with you today, Justine. Thank you so much for joining us. May I call you Maggie? Yes, you oh, may. Oh, goody. Thank you. Uh, let's, let's begin. Let's talk about leadership. Your forthcoming book is really all about leadership. And how did you get involved in working with leadership and what does that entail? Well, leadership began in my life. Um, I have to give you a little bit of a history in terms of I spent probably the first 15 years of my professional career helping organizations, often healthcare organizations, but others develop um, strategic plans and other kinds of plans. And then I spent the next 10 to 12 years figuring out and trying to understand why they don't implement the plans that they come up with and why is it so hard. <laughs> and when you get to the core of good implementation, at the bottom of it for an organization or a community or anything, there have to be people that are willing to assume some leadership responsibility to lead people through that implementation or that change. And so that's when I started focusing more and more on trying to get to the root of the problem. If we have better leaders and if we can help people cultivate their leadership capacities, uh, we will get to better implementations and we will actually come up with much better creative plans, whether that's a plan to uh, fix a community garden, or whether that's a plan to reinvent what healthcare looks like. So, are leaders born? 
That's a good question. In my work over in Africa, there is a very strong belief in many cultures that leaders are born, that you come in with it. And if you think about it historically, uh, we believe that too. There was, you know, how did, how did leadership pass? It was passed through heredity. You know, it was sons and daughters of kings and queens and others that became leaders. What the research shows is that leadership really is a combination of some innate qualities. So there are qualities that leaders come in with, that have, that they're born with. Such as? Well, um, courage is a critical one. Um, and are, are people born with courage or do they learn it, courage or create it? I don't know if you learn courage, but I think it's revealed. It's revealed in your life as you go through tasks, which then gets to the second part of it appears that leaders are a co combination of having certain attributes, being able to look at the big picture, being able to um, live in an ambiguity, being able to keep their own core solid with who they are as everything is swirling around them. Those are strengths and qualities, but you need the context to either activate it or to develop it. And that's how I got involved in creating a leadership development framework. I, going back to the word ambiguity, living, a leader needs to be able to live in ambiguity. So give an example. What, what do you mean by living in ambiguity? Well, one of the things that we're learning, again, in the 21st century with all of this change, is that... Uh, this, the path is not always so straightforward. We need to get real-time information from diverse perspectives to be able to understand, I've considered this point of view, this point of view, this data, and although I'd love to jump to conclusions, I can make very wrong decisions if I just go because I'm uncomfortable in the ambiguity of getting to an answer as opposed to finding the answer. Well, as in the Western culture, we are so solution-oriented, right. aren't we? We just, we really want the the solution right away, right here. We, we want it immediately. We, we don't like to hang out in the chaos, so to speak. We're not so good at that. Our, in the cultures that you've worked with in China or Africa or other cultures, do you find that other cultures can work better in that chaotic Environment. environment. Well, I, I, the way I th look at it, and again, this is my observation of perspective, is I think that their cultures allow for certain ambiguities. They have tools that deal with intuition, whether it's the I Ching or whether it's certain uh, uh, in, in traditional cultures. What does throwing a tarot does? What is it reading the runes from the Nord Nordic? Our Western mind has become so linear that we have ignored that for many, many times. But in the 21st century, there isn't a leader alive that does not have to tap into the intuitive and the ambiguous side that's not so clear. And, and the wonderful thing is modern science is helping us understand how to hold that ambiguity more, more completely. So what are some techniques for... Again, maybe that's a Western way of coming at it, but what are some techniques for holding that ambiguity? What can we do when we ourselves are faced with something that we, we don't see the clear solution? 
how do we hold that? Well, I actually think that there, that there are techniques and we need to use that. One of the first things is um, becoming more aware of your brain and how your brain processes information and creating rest times. Uh, you and I have shared the admiration of a man named Rick Hansen who wrote Buddha's Brain. And he has brought into the 20th, 20th century the ability and the wisdom of deep meditators and how do you adapt that into a 21st century environment. And so oftentimes simply stopping and saying, what's going on in my environment? What am I reacting to as a reaction as opposed to taking a breath and stop and pause? It can be as simple as doing a deep breathing exercise. Now, from a, a leadership perspective, one of the most important things to do is to open up the information that you're getting. Don't go always to the traditional sources that you're used to. We need to be able to look at opinions that don't agree with ours. We need to look at data that we don't necessarily like to pay attention to. And that starts to give us a path out of the uncertainty, but our first trigger in, in Western societies, let's get to the answers, let's move forward, we can figure it all out, when in fact we don't have enough information to figure it out. Well, a good example right now of what's going on, let's say, in U.S. politics, it is very, very polarized. And those people who are more progressive, they don't even want to listen to what the conservative side has to say, and vice versa, the conservative conservative side doesn't want to hear anything from the progressives. Yet there might be something that we can learn from each other, I suspect. I think that's where the answers are going to be found. And yes, we're polarized in the United States, but all you have to look at is the recent uh, Arab Spring the same polarization can fall in. The conservatives holding on to the way things were or taking us back to the way things are and the tension to move forward. And as long as we continue to deal with an either or, we're not going to find the new solutions because the new solutions don't resolve in going back to the past, nor do they uh, exist by ignoring what the past has to teach us. And so really good leaders have to become comfortable with dealing with data that may not even fit their belief system, but they have to pay attention. Going back to something that you said earlier, you said that different brains process differently. And um, how, how, do, how, is, how is that so? And, and what, what kind of processing have you come across in different people, how different people process different things? Well, let's talk about some um, concepts where that are science-based that make a lot of sense. There's the right brain and the left brain. And we now know through functional MRIs, we know which part of our brain actually is functioning. So when you are working on the right brain, which is nonverbal, that's where visual images are, Often intuition seems to reside there, but it can't get to the left side brain, which is where the verbal is. And so you need to, and on the left side of the brain, which is controlled, um, that controls linear thinking. It controls speech. It controls those pieces. So even within ourselves, we have to get better 
at knowing what are some techniques I can do to access if I'm in a native creative thinker who is very intuitive, how do I learn to strengthen some of the linear side so I can explain what it is I'm trying to say to my followers or to others? Some of our best leaders are intuitive thinkers, but they are not always so good at mapping out and here's how you get from here to there. Right, or teaching it, yeah. Or teaching yeah, it to right, others. Right. But the wonderful thing is we, we have techniques that people can undertake, but they have to be willing to understand that the first path of leadership is an inner journey. It's a development of deeper understanding of yourself and your attributes. Say something more about that. Well, if you look at historical leadership, it's been what I, who have the power, are going to do to get you to move in the directions that either I want you to move in or believe in or whatever. When you look over history, the leaders who have made positive change are the ones who have taken the inner journey first and they have done deep self-reflection. They understand who they are as a person. They understand what they stand for and they strengthen that inner core. That's what I think is the, the absolute core of what 21st century leadership is, is that cultivation of your self-awareness, self-development and self-management. What if you're angry all the time? What if you can't, you, I mean, we have a, a current politician that may not make the race because he's known to, for being hot-tempered. You know, people are not looking for those kinds of things for leaders anymore. So you have to take that inner journey. Does that help to explain that Oh, point? it does. It does. So, um, yeah, that we, we need to know ourselves, know thyself, <laughs> as they say. I'm here with Marguerite Moore Calloway, and she is the founder of the Callaway Leadership Institute. And she also is the author of The Energetics of Business and the forthcoming book, Leadership and the Unknown. My name is Justine Willis-Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. here with Marguerite Moore Calloway, and we're talking about leadership, and we're talking about the changing context of our time. Uh, well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about, we are, we, you and I were talking earlier, well, a couple of days ago when you first returned from Africa, and you had an insight that came to you as you were driving down a different side of the road than you're used to here. So let's talk about changing context. Okay. Well, when I 
One of the things that I think is very important for any of us, whether you're in a formal leadership position or not, is start to become aware of the context in which you operate. Because if we're in it all the time, it becomes second nature to us. And I have the opportunity several times a year to step out of my context, but not as a visitor going to tourist sites, but actually having to engage in work and people who live there. So I come from Northern California, where it's soon to be winter. I was just came back in November from a trip in November, and I'm going to their springtime on the opposite end of the wor world. So the days are getting longer. You get off the airplane and, and you're talking about South, South Africa. South, yeah, I fly into South Africa a lot, but I go to South Southern Africa a great deal. So you get off of the plane and you get into the uh, car. And first of all, your uh, steering wheel is on the opposite side of the of the thing. You get out and, and all of a sudden you're driving on the opposite side of the road that you have been driving on for more than 40 years on the other side. And all of a sudden you realize I'm out of context. And if I try to apply my context of driving on the right side of the road to a country that drives on the left side, I'll be in an accident in a nanosecond. <laughs> and so what I notice is whether it's the weather, which is the opposite of ours, the time zones, which are 10 to 12 hours difference, everything is sort of reversed. And I feel, although it's a bit disorienting, I feel what that's done is it's helped me polish my eyes of being able to look at the context when I come back to the United States or back to the familiar. And so I, I guess I, I have the opportunity of being out of context and then finding my way. And I think many of us are out of context. The, the work we used to do, how we used to do it, how information was being delivered. We used to have newspapers. Now we have the web. All of those things are in the process of changing. And and that's a change in context. And the whole economic structure, we, th we thought it was a temporary blip, but it seems like something else is going on, a new context is coming about. Can you say something about yes. that? Yes. Well, I, I happen to be one of those who believes that there are cycles to things. And um, we have gone through and continue to go through significant economic struggles here in the United States. But believe me, most of the world has going through similar ones that are there. And we can either bemoan and say, "Why? what have we lost? Or we can sit back and say, all right, these are the new conditions. What is it that is that I need to hold on to? And what do I need to let go of? What's, what programs or services, the way I used to do things, do they serve me any longer? I can tell you, I certainly think about running errands more efficiently so I don't spend too much gas when it used to be I would figure out another way of dealing with that. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think I'm using my resources better. And I think that more and more people are sitting back and saying, these are not limitless resources. These are resources we have to use wisely. Do you feel, as I do, um, things take longer to do, to accomplish than they used to, it seems. Like, it seems like I budget so much time to get something done. But I don't know if I, I just get distracted by, you know, email or something. I, I, I don't figure in or a telephone call or just something happens that I haven't figured in that never used to happen. Well, 
I think in I think your your observation is an accurate one, and um, I think part of that is because so many structures that we used to rely on uh, have changed. I used to be able to call a travel agent and say, "Here's where I need to go." Da 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 da. Figure it out and call me back. Now I need to sit back and think through. Which direction do I need to go? Because it's all available on the internet. Now, ultimately, for my international travel, I may have to talk to a live person. But I think with all of this automation and this plethora of information that's coming in, whether it's on your smartphone or on the computer or whatever, it um, we're having to process so much more and do so much more of those tasks that we never had to do before. Just, Maggie, an example, when when you talked about things are automated, how much time do we spend when we make a call and then it'll say, um, press one for this department, press two, and then they'll ask you another question and press one, press two. Whereas if we were talking to a person, we just say, here's my problem, and they would switch us over to the right one. But now we're taking, they're putting it on us. Mm The, the client, so to speak, to, to walk through all of these steps. And that's taking time. Or, or we call a cell phone and there's that long message that says, I don't know how many seconds it takes, but how many calls do you make where it takes, you listen and press one or press or, or stay on the line. And it, we've heard it a million times. It doesn't even need to be there anymore, but it takes this time, I guess we could kind of use that technique that you talked about earlier and just use the time to breathe. That's right. I think that that's a beautiful example of how time is one of our common contexts that's changed and how we use time has changed. And you can either bump up against it and get frustrated or you can say, ah, I'm in a pause here. Let me uh, take two or three deep breaths. And again, one of the things that's so wonderful about the, the neuroscientists, including Rick Hansen and others that are studying this, is just by taking three deep breaths, you actually change your brain chemistry and your, your stress hormones come down. And I think that's another variable that leaders need to learn how to manage is leading anything is a very stressful thing these days. You don't have all the minions that you can order around to get done. As a leader, you're taking on a huge amount of responsibility. So I think acknowledging that the context has changed can lower your frustration. And then you figure out when can you intervene and when can't you intervene. And one of the things I've noticed when I'm doing something such as creating a complicated travel regime, I'll go online, I'll get a sense of what I'm looking for, and then I will call and, and, and eventually get to a live person and say, My, I have to default to a human being because human beings capacities to intuitively problem solve are never going to be replicated by automated systems. But I'm more prepared when I talk to them. Right. You, so you've developed your own context to help them understand what your needs are. That's right. Let's talk about uh, that. You, you mentioned about leadership needing to take responsibility. And leadership um, brings with it a certain kind of power that they can override other decisions, they can make singular decisions. And 
but there is something that goes along with it for good leadership, and that's something that's maybe collaboration. Uh, talk about your collabor collaborative model. Well, I developed, I think it was in, in the mid-90s when I was doing just pretty traditional consulting where I like to call it black box consulting where pe the outside expert was brought in to solve a problem or find out what the problem was that others, if they could figure it out, they wouldn't call you in. And the, that model, and I think there was a parallel to that among leaders is, well, you're supposed to know the answers. Give me the answers and I can get on with it. But what I learned in this process is that what happens is when you come up with the answers, you've just created a huge barrier to implementation because you have not brought the people who have to do the implementing along. But even more importantly, you're ignoring the insights and the wisdom that they can apply to the problem. So a good leader needs to engage in collaboration because there are people around him or her that have critical insights who have been working the problem. Maybe they don't have the answer, but they have insights into where some of the solutions may lie. And so I learned early on, if we were going to have a successful engagement, you had to engage with the people who were doing the work. And a leader has to engage with the people who he or she is hoping will work together to undertake some positive outcome. So this, this might be... Um even even if we're a volunteer in some organization, we can bring what you're talking about. We can bring that into play. Can can you describe how that might play itself out? Certainly, um, and I think volunteers are, are a beautiful example. I mean, one of the best management insights that came about towards the end of the 20th century was. Um, in the process of understanding how to re-engineer business processes and things, well, it's not the expert that comes in with the answer. You need to couple that knowledge with the people who are actually on the ground doing the work. So you have to engage with the people who are doing this on a repetitive motion and give them permission to tell you what's not working. Now, that sets up an environment where identifying problems is welcomed and not punished. And... Our old model of leadership was a, a fear-based model where if, some, if you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, you're in trouble. Well, maybe that person can't do what's right because four steps before, what needed to get done never got done. So, you, so to collaborate and to engage with a volunteer who is probably tentative about just tell me what to do, if you want to get something from that person, give them permission to say, well, as you do this for a while, I'm very open to suggestions. So this strength of character of leaders, it takes a lot more courage to say, I don't have all of the answers. Yes. I have insights and I have some suggestions, but I need your input so that we can figure more of this out together. That's when we get to better answers. And that needs to be across the board, what we're doing in politics, in business, and in, in just our everyday work a world. Correct. And um, so in, in that collaboration, do you see um, this ha happening more and more in businesses and or those businesses 
that are really thriving, I guess. Exactly. Doing, yeah. The businesses that are fly, thriving and the organizations that are thriving are the ones are, are, that are being led by leaders who actually have, they've cultivated themselves to a certain extent, but they now understand that to get to an accurate picture of the current issues and the future, they must engage in collaboration and they don't have to use power to get their point across. I'm here with Marguerite Moore Calloway. And if you'd like to be in touch with her and, and the work that she does, you can go to her website, Calloway, and that's C-A-L-L-A-W-A-Y, CallowayLeadership.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Marguerite Moore Calloway, and we're talking about leadership, about collaboration, about new context. Um, seems as if there's something that we're more and more looking to nature and the the whole biological systems and bringing them more to play rather than the mechanical. We're kind of we've left the mechanical age, and we're not quite into the biological age, but what can you say about that? What's going on? Well, I love your statement that we seem to be searching, and we are searching for different ways of looking at things. And I think when you look at leadership and management in the 21st century, we will be looking at organizations much more as living systems. And that sounds well, and I would say that was part of what I discovered, is they're, they're comprised of human beings. I mean, an organization isn't a business process. Even if it's highly automated, somebody had to think of it. And it, there are going to have to be some humans that know how to run it. And so if you look at most historical management uh, books and so forth, and even look at the metaphors that are still very present today, they're of a mechanical orientation. And I first got a glimmer into this when I read a book in 1991 called Bionomics. And it was the first attempt by an author, Michael Rothschild, to bring a biological perspective to the economic model. And I was trained, I have many different trainings, but my last graduate work was in um, finance and statistics. And I understand the economic models. But when you think about it, Justine, we talk about the engine of project of, of, of progress. We have to jumpstart the economy as if it's a machine you can turn on or turn off. And in fact, those metaphors set us on a path of problem solving that may not be an accurate reflection of what really is going on. And so when you sit back and think about it, um, businesses, economies are much more interactive. If we've learned anything over the last eight 
well, I would say the last five years during this economic downturn is what's happening in one part of the world has a drastic effect on another. That's not a mechanistic model. That's a living system and a biological system model. And, and so all things are connected. All things are connected. And that, and you have to look at the systems approach to looking at problems as opposed to a linear approach to it. And living systems are systems that interact with each other. Let's look at something as simple as our human body. We have a respiratory system. We have a neurological system. We have a gastro, we have a, um, a bio, I'm sorry, our, our digestive system. Well, they all interact. They have different functions, but they interact. And I think the answers to our problems and our management models are going to be much better by looking at biological and living systems that function and adapt as opposed to this older model of, of mechanistic and linear thinking. Well, as you say that, I'm thinking of healthcare because we have all these specialists that uh, that look at the digestive tract, and that's all there. And or someone who just looks at the foot or the ear, or it is these separate pieces. What have you learned? You you look work a lot in healthcare organizations, and you've been working in Africa with some healthcare organizations. So, what have you learned about what? they're doing that we might adapt and vice versa? Well, I think one of the things that I'm always struck with when I come from the United States and I go to any other part of the world, including in Europe, is how heavily technologically driven our healthcare system is. We have a test for absolutely everything. I walk into situations where those machines, if they did exist, many people, they can't work anymore. And I think part of what we're needing to learn is the balance of getting a good history and physical and not looking at the symptom of a problem, but trying to look at it more holistically. And so sometimes going to prevention and simpler solutions is better than actually going to the highest possible technology because we're finding it's not sustainable. Right now, our healthcare system costs 17, 17 to 18% of our entire GDP, and that cost is going up as our population ages. The big fight around the healthcare system right now is who are we gonna pay, who's gonna pay for it, how are we gonna pay for it, and what is going to get paid for? Every country in the world is asking similar questions to that. And I think that in the long run, although we're focusing on technology like an electronic medical record and so forth, and who should pay for what, we need to actually look at what's the structure of our healthcare system. And it's basically fragmented with specialists spread all over the place. And the only common denominator is the patient who travels around with them. And so I think we're going to be seeing a reconfiguration of our delivery system, our healthcare delivery system, that's going to go more and more towards a model that has been very effective, the multi-specialty group practice, where you have teams of doctors and nurses and teams working together as opposed to going to isolated specialists. But isn't it uh, right now the way it is? People 
doctors are not encouraged to share their information back and forth because of parent, I mean, because of a client in, or patient's rights, so to speak, that, you know, you don't want to have this doctor knowing this or well that i think that that's a misperception it's not so much that the doctors didn't want to share the information until the electronic medical record became available it became impossible to by law because it's tied Uh to patient privacy okay it's known as hipaa and so forth but if you're in something called a group practice and you have a single medical record then everybody is putting that information onto the same record. Now, I think further on down the line, the owner of that medical record is gonna be you, the patient, and you're gonna be bringing your electronic medical record to your various specialists. I'm thinking as you're talking about this, I'm thinking of something um, in California, it's called um, court-appointed special advocate, I think it's what it's called. And this is a volunteer position, and it's someone who is volunteering to help a young person under 18 through all the different systems. And this is the only person that has total access to that young person's complete file, so they know what what maybe... Um, the law enforcement says, knows what the judge says, knows what the therapist says, knows what the social worker says, knows what the parents have said, knows, has access to that full record that you're talking about. And, and this person, a CASA, I guess it's called CASA, C-A-S-A, it's called different things in different states, but it's this wonderful person who, is walking through the system with this young person as their advocate, and they have the full picture. And that's what you're talking about with healthcare, to to have that full picture. That's right. For but but the advocate is yourself. In this case, it in would this, be yourself. It would, it would be yourself, and but that requires a shift in thinking on the part of you as a patient. Instead of walking in and saying, "Well, you have to figure it out," and you fix you me. have to and you fix me mechanistically. I have a broken body part. Fix it. I have a system that's out of order. Fix it. It means that you are taking on some of the responsibility to say, "Wait a minute." At the end of the day. Only I am responsible for managing the health and the information. One of the things that MD Anderson does, when because people go to MD Anderson, a world-renowned cancer center, one of the very first things that the MD Anderson system does when you become a patient there is they give you your medical record. Because they believe philosophically you have a right and a need to know what's in that medical record because you're going to be making very difficult choices about what treatments you think after they give you advice, it's still ultimately, should I do this or shouldn't I do that? But that requires the patient to stop being so passive. It requires us as human beings to say, I am responsible to managing the information that exists within me. And fortunately, the wonderful thing is technology is going to allow us to do that. Well, we do have, this is the magic of the internet, we do have access to tremendous amount of information 
let's say we do get a diagnosis, we can look up almost anything and just find out all sorts of information. How do we sort through that, though? We're not a professional. So how how do we manage that? We, we might have more knowledge, but it might do us more damage. Oh, I think and, that's a beautiful point. You can get the information, but you can't necessarily um, interpret its relevance. But I know of a company, for example, that's in the process of making sure that the information that is brought forward has been uh, uh, validated as accurate and so on. So we're, we're starting to see some of these things. A beautiful example is sign up for something like the Mayo Clinic newsletter that you can get on a monthly basis and they have topical topics. So it is important to become informed, but all too often when you get a diagnosis, you immediately go into fear. Mm-hmm. And you're going to be processing information that may or may not be relevant for you. So you can't be figuring it out on your own. You don't have the technical expertise. And everybody's different. Every, That's correct. Everybody is different <laughs> and, uh, and will respond differently to different uh, drugs or different techniques or different help, you know, in whatever way. So... We have to really, again, going back to what you were talking about, about leadership, know thyself first. Know, know what we respond to. Know, we know ourselves better than anyone. And we don't often, often we don't give ourselves credit for that. And we don't speak up. We don't lead our own lives. We don't. Oh, we don't lead our own lives. We don't. We, we turn it over to people around us or organizations or so on. And to come back to the notion of leaders, one of the leaders I think that will go down in the test of time of, of, of a remarkable leader of the 21st century is Nelson Mandela. And I've studied a great deal of his life. And he went into prison, never to come out again. It was a life sentence. when he was um, 55 years of age, and he was in for 27 years. He used those 27 years of incarceration to develop himself, to understand himself, to cultivate his spiritual understanding, to learn different things. So he became, he led his life, even in prison. And so when he stepped out of that prison, he could take on seemingly impossible tasks of taking a diversive, diversive, separated, violent country and pulling it together to peaceful resolution. That's leading yourself. I'm here with Marguerite Moore Calloway, and she's the author of the forthcoming book, Leadership and the Unknown. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Marguerite Moore Calloway, and we're talking about leadership. How can we cultivate our own leadership qualities? That's a that's a terrific question, and I I get the privilege of working with people who find themselves in leadership positions or soon will be in leadership positions without any quote requisite either leadership or management training, because I work a lot with healthcare professionals who find themselves all of a sudden running things. And first, let me make three statements. I've never met a human being that sets out to be a bad or ineffective leader. They may be ineffective, but that's not what their goal is. That's not what their intention is. And so if you find yourself in a situation that you really either it's thrust upon you or that you really f- want to improve your capacity as a leader. Um, one of the very first steps is to do a self-analysis. And one of the homework assignments I give to everybody is um, I have a formal leadership ass- uh, uh, self-assessment that's specifically around leadership that I'd be happy to share with people if they want to send me an email or something like that. But this is an exercise I can give you instructions over the phone. First of all, immediately think of yourself at your own funeral and people are giving honest eulogies. You're at the end of the life, but you're observing it all. And you want those individuals to tell you, to to tell the audience that can be a family member. You also need a, a working colleague, a member from the community, and a fourth person that depending upon what your life is, what would they say about you and what did you do in your life? And try to be as honest as you can and check with some people. Then that's your first, this is where I am today. Then I would start thinking about what is it that I would like people to say about me at the end of my life. And that will start charting for you a path of making clearer in your own mind, gee, maybe I need to learn more of this, or maybe I want to have this experience, or maybe there's a self-development task that I want to take on. So the next step is for you to do a SWOT analysis of yourself. And this is used in business all the time. A SWOT analysis is what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? What are your opportunities? What do you have? What are the factors going in your favor? And what are the obstacles that you have to overcome? So now you're looking at a more accurate, complete picture of who you are from the positive as well as the negative. Then combine where you want to go with that picture and create a personal mission statement. And you can Google mission statement and look up what does a mission statement mean. We apply that to organizations and people will write about it, a purpose-driven life, etc. But what is your personal mission statement? What do you stand for? And why does it matter to you? And then create a short and a long-term action plan. And the action plan, the first one should be one to three years because there are many variables in your life you can't change immediately. But if you, if three to five or 15 years out, maybe you will, your children will have grown and you don't have those obligations. Maybe you um, have retired from the position that you're currently in. Maybe you have more resources, maybe less responsibility. So it gives you both a short-term time frame and a longer-term time frame. And we know from, from cognitive science that when we start envisioning 
where we want to be in the future, that in and of itself starts to trigger us to be open to synchronicities and other things as we go forward. Well, Maggie, when we are, let's suppose, here we're in this chaotic time, and and some of us are finding ourselves in a position we never thought we'd be at this time in our life. We, maybe we thought that we would be retired and, and uh, being with our grandchildren or being able to just volunteer our time and not have to work in any way. But many people are finding that retirement is not what's coming at them at this point and that they're having to to work or do things that they never thought that they would be doing at this time in their lives in their 60s and 70s even 80s so can you say something to these people yes but i want to generalize it because there are many good college graduates that did very well in school that can't find a job uh-huh. Yes. Okay. Uh, yes. There are there are mid-career people that are in their 40s and 50s that all of a sudden the work they used to do has just been outsourced. So th- everybody's context is in the process of changing because we had expectations of what it was going to be like. And so I think, and that certainly has been true in my life. I never, if you had told me I would be working in Africa and China eight years ago, I would go, Why? Etc. Okay, and that's another story, and it's not relevant to here. But I think first and foremost, you have to come to terms with this is where I am now. This is the circumstance. You may have to go through mourning about it. You may have to go through whatever, but realize that that future was also an expectation. It wasn't a reality. It was just what you thought was going to happen. And then start undertaking, again, the SWOT analysis takes you back to who you are and what your basic talents are. And for the young people, it's a perfect time to do some volunteer work. Maybe you're not getting paid, but you can get some expertise in things you've never done before. And for you, as as an elderly person, you may not have a job, but you have a wealth of wisdom. You have practical things that you know how to do. And by going through a strength and weakness exercise, all of a sudden, you're looking at yourself from the outside in and say, well, wait a minute, there are some things I never thought I would be thinking about. I don't know about you, Justine, but I'm learning how to do things I never thought I could do before. Yeah, me too. But you might need uh, some help, a, a friend of the heart who, to help you see that in yourself. If you're not used to looking at your strengths, uh, then you might need someone to help kind of prod you to, to know your strengths. Absolutely. You do need that outside perspective. Um, what I find among leaders and people who want to make a positive difference, we're often our own worst enemy. We're so self-critical of what we're not doing. And particularly if your life has had particular setbacks, you've lost a lot of faith in yourself or you've lost a lot of faith in the outside world being a benevolent one out there. And this is when having people that know you and trust you and have these conversations so that they can be a positive mirror and a point of support because you are going to feel lost as your context disappears. So I, I agree. Don't try to do this journey by yourself. So one of the important things is to not isolate yes. at, at, at a time of a major change. Correct. And, and, but we want to, we want to kind of just hide under the, under the covers. It's a tendency and well, that's the fight or flight. 
You know, I mean, I, I mean, and when the world has changed so dramatically and you've lost your markers when you're driving on the opposite side of the road. And by the way, in South Africa, there are no signs that tell you what side of the road to drive on. It's just everybody else is driving on the other side of the road. This is when you bring it in to a very uh, simple set of practices. I get up today. What is it that I can do positively today that's going to move me to one next step, even if I can't see around the corner? Uh, if you spend time, if you don't have a lot of immediate uh, social contact. Today, what am I going to do? Am I going to go for a walk with a friend? Am I going to a free lecture at the library? Am I going to plug into um, a chat room on on the web around a topic that's of interest to me? I, I often think that spirit can work with us more easily if we do make ourselves available out in the world somehow. It's harder to do it when when we're just within the four walls of our home. But when we're out in the world, let's say at that lecture, we might run across someone who might just have something for us that we would have never, a synchronicity can take place. Absolutely. And the synchronicities don't stay, take place if you're isolating. You wrote yeah. a book. What's the name of your book again? Yeah, Small Pleasures, Finding Grace in a Chaotic World. That I would recommend to anybody who is facing chaos in their lives. It's a tremendous resource of finding simple, appropriate, small things right. that keep you grounded to say, wait a minute, I am alive, I am breathing, and the world is moving forward. I think the naysayers and the fear is one of the biggest things we have to say, put an antidote to is, is we are making progress. It's changing. Oh, that's so good. We are making progress We because we focus so much on what's not happening. And the, we're fed through the mainstream media all sorts of things that are saying what's what's going wrong and how it's not happening. So it, it takes a little more creativity to find those things that are working. And there are plenty of them. Yes, there are. I mean, again the the uh, the violent rate of crime is down to an all-time low, all right? Interestingly enough, in spite of hard times, the amount of giving is up. The amount of volunteerism is coming up. Look at the technology that allows us to touch base to people anywhere in the world at a, mar at a relatively small cost. Yes. Those are positive improvements. These are, these are the good news, the blades of grass that are coming up. Um, well, Maggie, I just want to thank you so much for being with us today. It's been my pleasure inviting you on and having you speak to us about leadership, about how to cope with chaos and and these changing contexts. Well, you're so welcome. And just don't ever doubt the incredible value that New Dimensions brings, not just to the people you know, but to the thousands of listeners around the globe who, who turn to you for insight and wisdom. So it's been a pleasure to contribute in any way I can. Oh, thank you so much. If you'd like to be in touch with the work of Marguerite Moore Calloway, you can go to her website. That's callawayleadership.com, and that's C-A-L-L-A-W-A-Y, leadership.com. Or you can go to the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. And you can look forward to her forthcoming book, Leadership and the Unknown. 
My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3425. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.